This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, October 2nd. I'm Kate Trinka. And I'm Virginia Allen. The former Secretary of the Navy, J. William Middendorf, a trustee of the Heritage Foundation, says America has entered a new Cold War with China and Russia. Secretary Middendorf joins the show to discuss his book, The Great Nightfall, How We Win the New Cold War, and explain the threat China poses to America's interests and what the U.S. military must do to be prepared to stand against our enemies. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, and a group of Democrats have formally asked Senate Republicans to postpone Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing until after the inauguration. On Wednesday, Feinstein, the leading Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, sent a letter to the chairman of the committee, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, asking him to delay his October 12th hearing start date. In the letter, Feinstein says, The timeline for consideration of Judge Barrett's nomination is incompatible with the Senate's constitutional role. We again urge you to delay consideration of this nomination until after the presidential inauguration. Feinstein argues that the committee and the American people do not have enough time to review Barrett's qualifications before the hearing is scheduled to begin. Barrett has already submitted her 65-page questionnaire to the Senate Judiciary Committee detailing her professional legal history. She's also given them hundreds of pages of her legal opinions and writings to review. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany spoke with Fox News White House correspondent John Roberts about President Trump and white supremacy after Trump's remarks at Tuesday's debate, which stirred controversy. Via Fox News, here's that exchange. If I could start off, um, I'd like to ask you for a definitive and declarative statement without ambiguity or deflection. As the person who speaks for the president, does the president denounce white supremacism and groups that espouse it in all their forms? This has been answered yesterday by the president himself, the day before by the president himself on the debate stage. The president was asked this. He said, sure, three times. Yesterday, he was point blank blank asked, do you uh, denounce white supremacy? And he said, I've always denounced any form of that. I can go back and read for you um, in August 2019 in one voice our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. In August of 2017, racism is evil, and those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups. I have an entire list of these quotes that I can go through with you. He has condemned white supremacy more than any president in modern history. Just to clear it up this morning, can you, naming it, make a declarative statement that you denounce, that the president denounces it? I just did. Uh, The president has denounced this. Repeatedly. The, the you, president was asked this. You're you just, making, you're contriving a no, storyline and a narrative. I'm asking you to put he this said, to rest. I just did. I read you all of the quotes. And if you need quotes, to see them in writing, I will put them in an email. Hold on. So, Haley, can, can you right now denounce white supremacy 
and the group that I just said, the president has announced white supremacy, the KKK, and hate groups in all forms. He signed a resolution to that effect. Uh, the president just last week, perhaps you all weren't covering it, but just last week expressed his desire to see the KKK prosecuted as domestic terrorists. This president uh, had advocated for the death penalty for a white supremacist, the first federal execution in 17 years. His record on this is unmistakable. The Trump administration has proposed lowering the number of refugees allowed to settle in the U.S. to 15,000 during the next fiscal year. This number would be the lowest on record. The Department of State said Wednesday night that the low number was being considered in a commitment to prioritize the safety and well-being of Americans, especially in light of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The president has lowered the number of refugees admitted into the U.S. since he took office. Last year's cap was 18,000. Former President Barack Obama allowed up to 116,000 refugees to enter the country during his final year in office. Trump has received harsh criticism from the left for his proposal. Menar Wahid, senior legislative and advocacy counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union, said in a statement, America must play a role in the protection of people seeking safety from persecution, torture, and genocide as our laws demand. This is the America we fight to be. Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, has vetoed a bill that would have required all California high school students in about a decade to take ethnic studies in order to graduate. However, Newsom isn't vetoing it because he disagrees with mandatory ethnic studies, but because he thinks the model curriculum of ethnic studies needs work. In his veto message, Newsom noted that he had signed legislation that mandated all California State University students take ethnic studies in order to graduate, and said that California doesn't just tolerate diversity, it celebrates it. Now stay tuned for my conversation with the former Secretary of the Navy, J. William Middendorf, about the new Cold War America finds itself in with China. America is at a crossroads. Each day we see the penalties of progressive policies across our nation, while night after night our city streets are set ablaze by riots and rage. That's why the Heritage Foundation has developed a plan to help take our country back. The Citizen's Guide to Fight for America provides a series of heritage-recommended action items delivered to you each week. Make an impact in your community and in our country. Sign up for the Citizen's Guide at heritage.org 2020 and join in the fight for America today. I am joined by the former Secretary of the Navy, William Middendorf. Sir, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Your bio is incredibly impressive. You served as the United States Ambassador to the Netherlands before becoming the Secretary of the Navy in the mid-1970s. You also headed the CIA transition team for then incoming President Ronald Reagan 
and you served as the U.S. representative to the European Economic Community, now known as the European Union. We could go on and on um, about all of the various roles that you've served in. You've also authored a number of books, including your latest, The Great Nightfall, How We Win the New Cold War. And you were serving in the Navy and positions of leadership uh, in the American government really all throughout the Cold War. Do you mind just taking a few minutes to tell us a little bit about what that was like to be serving on the front lines during the Cold War? I was mainly in the shipbuilding side of that. Of course, the Secretary of the Navy's job is to provide the material and weapons and recruit the men and women for the Navy. And uh, so during the Cold War, I sponsored long lead time ships and planes uh, that were needed to win the Cold War. The long lead time is about 10 years. So to build any weapon system, we began production on the Trident submarine, which is the Ohio-class submarine, which uh, carries the ICBM uh, nuclear warhead, uh, long-range nuclear warheads. Uh, as the final shield of America, 70% of our entire nuclear arsenal is deployed on them. And uh, we also started the Aegis missile program, building a fleet of 60 ships, uh, the early work class cruisers with advanced radar that could uh, detect advanced weapon systems from the Soviet Union and shoot them down. And then finally, we, we built the uh, F-18, that advanced aerial attack fighter. Ten years later, uh, they were front and center at the, at the um, apogee of the Cold War, and and they, along with advanced weapons developed by the Air Force and Army, we were able to win the Cold War. Uh, the Soviets had to stand down. Based on that experience, I wrote the book, The Great Nightfall, How to Win the New Cold War, which is basically against China, and with China and uh, who has stolen the march on us and building some very advanced weapon systems. And uh, they pose a threat today that's exponentially greater than the threat we face at the end of the first Cold War. Can you tell us a little bit more specifically about that threat? Because I think, you know, many Americans, we view China as a threat, certainly uh, economically, certainly uh, technology-wise, but specifically, how is China a threat to America militarily? Uh, several ways, both conventional and non-conventional warfare. Their Navy now exceeds ours. Uh, they have built 350 ships and uh, ours is 293. Most people are not aware of that, and they're building their third and fourth carriers, uh, and they're proposing a fifth carrier, which will be nuclear. The uh, missile capabilities they have are very advanced. They and the Russians have developed a hypersonic cruise missiles, 4,000 miles, and uh, we have no defense. As Secretary Mattis said, uh, we have no defense against these. Uh, this uh, could be a checkmate if in, a, in a serious altercation. Uh, they've built some very competent, advanced submarines and, and anti-submarine warfare capabilities. In addition to that, uh, they've uh, gone heavily into uh, non-conventional warfare uh, systems. Uh, the EMP threat, the electromagnetic pulse threat, uh, to America is is vital because we lay naked, so to speak. Uh, if they set off a nuclear 
last uh, couple hundred miles over Omaha, uh, we it would incapacitate most of our electrical grid for many months. And the Defense Department a few years ago said that we would lose 80 percent of the population uh, in six or eight months before that could be fully repaired. We're working hard to correct that imbalance, but uh, we're not there yet. In addition to that, if you consider warfare, new form of warfare, cyber warfare is just as important uh, in that it downloads uh, and our intelligence and our top secrets. Uh, two years ago, in a very drastic accident, the Chinese downloaded our top secrets, our nuclear submarine top secrets from a submarine facility in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, uh, this was uh, 600 gigabytes, I think, something like that. Uh, it was a devastating loss to us. Uh, that's an act of war. If there ever, ever was one in a non-conventional warfare capability. So we are well into, uh, we're well into the, the Second Cold War by that very act. Plus the fact that they've stolen everything else we have that's sitting around and on the computers. Their new uh, attack airplane looks remarkably like our F-35 and uh, probably has almost as many capabilities probably because they downloaded our top secrets. In addition to that, they've developed a tremendously capable anti-satellite capability in space uh, where they can damage our entire GPS systems. So we would be traveling blind if we had to fire our missiles and uh, what, uh, what have you. The Russians are with them on that. And they both have those capabilities. We're setting up a space force and we're trying to catch up in that area, but we have a long way to go. It's not only kinetic warfare, that's the old World War II heavy weapons system against heavy weapons systems warfare, but the non-conventional uh, where we face our greatest threats. We are talking with former Secretary of the Navy, William Middendorf, about his latest book, the Great Nightfall, how we win the new Cold War. And Secretary, you've just laid out so clearly why China is such a threat to America today. What is America doing about this? How are we preparing to be able to meet the strength of China? Well, unfortunately, if a football field was laid out, we would be on the minus 10-yard line uh, starting a couple of years ago, because for eight to 10 years, Two previous administrations had what they call a sequester, which reduced our military spending, especially for weapon systems. And they took $800 billion out of our military budget and, and diverted it to other programs. So we ended up uh, in 2017 and 18 uh, behind the eight ball, really behind the eight ball. So, or shall we say behind the goal line. And now we've added a couple hundred billion dollars each year to the budget, but we have a long way to go. And one of the advanced weapons systems we're building are the Virginia-class submarines, which are very silent and have the Tomahawk and Harpoon missiles. We have to uh, accelerate the development of those from two to three a year. Uh, we have to uh, build the Columbia-class submarine, which will, we can start production of that uh, to take the place of the uh, 45-year-old Trident submarine program. first one should start coming online in 2031, and uh, we complete that program in the early 2040s. Uh, and then we can replace the Trident submarine, which will then be 50 or 60 years old. That's the only choice we 
have an, a board that Columbia will be subject to 80% of our entire nuclear arsenal. And that's, of course, the great peacemaker. Uh, it's an extremely silent submarine, 6,000 plus miles range, and uh, these terrifically powerful nuclear warheads, uh, which uh, should neutralize any potential adversary. So at this point in time, is America on track? Have we recognized the true threat that China poses? And I mean, you mentioned all of these actions that are sort of in the works. Are, are we moving swiftly on these things? Or does America really need to pick up the pace in order to truly uh, beat China in this Cold War? As I said, we have to move much faster if we want to maintain parity against China and Russia and Iran and North Korea. And also remember this, there are 50,000 nuclear warheads, probably eight, 10 uh, countries that have those capabilities. And uh, there are a lot of flashpoints that I talk about in my book where nuclear warheads can be used like India, China, Pakistan, India, and once uh, the problem with nuclear warheads uh, being used is that uh, once it starts, uh, it proliferates very fast. It would be any time at all before retaliation occurs uh, out of control. In wartime, um, all morality sort of disappears pretty fast. My father and uncle both served in World War One, and they were told we were all told that gas warfare would not occur. It was too devastating. Uh, but then uh, it was try- it was used and uh, instantly both sides were using it to devastating effect, willy uh, nilly, and uh, had huge, heavy, heavy, heavy casualties everywhere. The same thing would be true of once the nuclear warheads uh, start to be used, and they will be used uh, by some of these rogue countries, uh, possibly which will proliferate to the larger companies. Many of the big cities, for example, Beijing or New York or Los Angeles could be reduced very quickly to ice-stating rinks. Well, sir, it's incredible, I think, that you have chosen to take the time, just with your perspective and the leadership roles that you've served in, to write this book and to weigh in on this really pressing issue. Why did you feel so compelled to write this book? You know, I had my 96th birthday three days ago. Happy and, birthday. Uh, so, uh, oh, thank you. So I, I'm obviously about to drop dead, but uh, I just wanted to make sure that uh, all the experience since I served in World War II and served in a number of other roles in public service, I wanted to make sure that I got the message out as a final thing. And I do feel that... Uh, If we're resolute and wise, we can win the new Cold War. Well, Secretary, we thank you so much for your continued service throughout your entire life to this country, for your dedication to America. And we encourage all of our listeners to please visit thegreatnightfall.com to order your copy of The Great Nightfall, How We Will Win the New Cold War. Secretary Middendorf, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. And I do want to note one correction from an episode last week when Amy Swearer discussed Brianna Taylor. Swearer stated that Taylor had died in her bed. In fact, Taylor's body was found in the hallway of her apartment. We regret the error. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back with you on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.